Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Looking at another green day on the screen today, maybe some expectation that fiscal stimulus may still be on the table. Let's get the latest market musings. We do that with Barry Ritholtz, Bloomberg opinion columnist and host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, also founder, chairman and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. So Barry, looking at the market over the last several days, better market action here this week, perhaps some expectations that some fiscal stimulus will be achieved. I would get your thoughts on the view that perhaps the market is also discounting not just a Biden victory, but also perhaps maybe a Democratic win in the Senate. How do you kind of meld market action with what's going on in on the political landscape? Sure. Fascinating question. Um, you know, you, you really have to, anytime you're looking at the world of politics and investing, you have to make sure that you leave your personal partisan preferences at the door and, and you're as objective as possible. I know that's really challenging. Uh, one solution to to avoiding your biases from leading you astray is rather than cherry-picking the poll that supports whoever you want to win, you look at an average of all the polls that are out there. And there are lots of different entities that do that. Um, 538 is one. 270 to win gives you an average of every state poll. Um, Real Clear Politics is a third. So, So by doing that, you end up with a, a, a rough consensus of what's happening as opposed to something that just, you know, confirms your priors is the, the term of art. And what I suspect we're beginning to see here, if you look at the most recent average of all the polls, the gap that has been pretty consistent between Vice President Biden and President Trump has really begun to widen it started after the presidential debate. It really expanded after the president became um, positive for coronavirus. And I think the markets are starting to recognize that the potential for civil unrest, but the potential for things getting out of hand if there is no election decision right away, and if, if, if it looks very close and there's all sorts of litigation and turmoil, that's appearing to be less and less of a, po- a probability. So, Barry, what do you do on a day like today where you have the possibility, potentially, that President Trump will be open to you know, the sides taking up stimulus talks again, and then you have Nancy Pelosi on TV reiterating that you know, she doesn't want airline aid without a bigger package, and the airline index itself was like a yo-yo just on those headlines. I mean, right. does the market have no patience to wait for an outcome anymore? Look, we're, we're less than four weeks from the election, and I'm shocked that my friends on the GOP side do not seem to know the first law of holes. The first law of holes is when you find yourself in a hole, for God's sake, stop digging. <laughs> and this is really an astonishing thing. Uh, look, it, it, there was every opportunity, and, and we have discussed repeatedly how absolutely self-defeating it, it has been for there not to be a stimulus plan, forget October. We were talking about this July, August, September. And then the president hands a gift to Nancy Pelosi 
saying, I've directed my staff to stop negotiations. That made headlines. That's all anybody's going to remember. Why on earth does she have any incentive to negotiate? You know, Sun Tzu tells you when your enemy is in the process of destroying themselves, stay the heck out of his way. And I think that's what we're looking at. There is no reason for Nancy Pelosi to agree to anything except her full list of, of $2.2 trillion and everything else she wants, because at this point, the whole uh, country is going to blame the president for stopping the negotiation process. He, he tried to walk it back, and it doesn't seem like anybody's, uh, anybody's believing it. So whatever they do isn't going to be spent until January anyway. Might as well wait until the Biden administration comes in and passes their flavor of uh, stimulus, which I expect to be enormous. Well, how bad is that for the economy, Barry, from a timing perspective, if we don't get relief sooner rather than later? I think it's pretty bad. You're already seeing signs in the labor market that things are starting to slow down. Um, you know, uh, we discussed a couple of months ago the K-shaped economy. Mm-hmm. A part of the economy is doing really well, and lots of the parts are doing poorly. Uh, you, you just were reporting that the Westchester County set record price um, record levels for prices for houses as uh, well-off people are moving out of the city and, and to the suburbs. Uh, so, so the ongoing haves and have-nots is, is that gap is going to continue to expand. The general consensus that a lot of the economic recovery, a lot of the V-shaped recovery that we have seen from March and April through September has been driven in large part by the $3 trillion in emergency uh, aid passed by Congress back in, at the end of March, beginning of April. That is beginning to fade. We already have seen the $1,200 check spent. We've already seen the bonus $600 unemployment level spent. People are now starting to roll off of unemployment. Uh, the eviction moratorium has ended. This could potentially get pretty ugly over the next couple of months. Again, I am perplexed as to why this was not resolved 90 days ago, even 60 days ago. The fact that we're even discussing this today tells you how absolutely incompetent Congress is. All of D.C. just is not not showing itself to be uh, remotely intelligent in these prospects. And, And I expect a lot of incumbents to pay the price. Meantime, McDonald's does better because large group orders are higher in the United States. In other words, you know, families are having to order at McDonald's instead. Barry Riddles, thank you so much for joining. Who's your master's in business candidate this week? Joel Greenblatt of uh, Gotham, yes, Gotham Asset Management. And, and yeah, Gotham Asset Management. He put up 50% a year numbers for a decade. Quite an astonishing track. And interesting because noted value manager too. Um, value, but he's sort of a relative value guy and a value um, with a little bit of a, a, a growth flavoring, and, and he continues to do uh, do pretty well. Well, I'll take it, as they say, 50% a year. <laughs> Thank you very much. Barry Riddles, Barry Riddles of Wealth Management, Barry Riddles Wealth Management, but also, of course, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, host of Masters in Business, and so much more, uh, friend to this show in particular. So, Paul, the other story that I just uh, thought I'd throw out there while we have the time is that Blackstone is looking to office, open an office in Miami, right? And wow. hire yep. f- uh, workers in South Florida. It seems like that's the next place that banks and bankers are, are moving to. 
Yeah, it's certainly a better tax situation in Florida versus uh, the metro New York area. All right, well, we are seven months into this pandemic, and one of the uh, takeaways is that people are working from home. More and more people are working from home than ever thought possible. Uh, Productivity remains pretty decent, as most of the reporting that we're seeing. The question, though, is when and how will workers go back to the offices? Rebecca Ray, Executive Vice President of Human Capital at the Conference Board, joins us. They had a pretty interesting survey about this issue. Let's get some of the results. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us here. What did your survey show you about employees and their willingness and eagerness to return to the office? Well, thank you, Paul. It's a a pleasure to be with you. And uh, this was the follow-up survey. Remember, you listeners will recall, we had asked employers about their thoughts about returning. And one of the findings there was that less than 60% even bothered to uh, survey employees to see how they felt. So that's what this new survey is about. And uh, we asked them. We had about 1,100 folks respond across the U.S. and different industries. And they are not in any hurry to return. Um, we've, what we found was that 17% of the respondents said they were very comfortable and, in fact, eager to return. But there's another 70% that had some level of discomfort uh, about returning, and some were moderately comfortable and some were not comfortable at all, about 31% of that 70 So, you know, they're not in any rush. And, in fact, um, you know, when we asked them about some of their concerns about returning to the workplace, uh, indicated that they questioned the wisdom of returning at all, given that productivity had been fairly high. Uh, And, you know, the discomfort that that comes from seeing the number of cases on the rise in in many places. So um, some felt, why go back? It's only going to shut down again. So it was was interesting to see what their hesitations were and, and some of their concerns, not reflected in our earlier survey because that was, you know, asked of people who were in decision-making positions. Rebecca, did your survey capture all levels? I'm curious as to whether some people were feeling the pressure to go back because they felt like they might lose their job if they didn't show face at some point. Uh, yes, Bonnie. Um, we did have uh, varying levels of uh, uh, respondents. Um, we had uh, individual contributors and we had frontline managers all the way up through C-suites and executives. And, and indeed, those who were individual contributors or frontline managers uh, to the tune of a, a combined 41% of the survey said that they were uh, feeling more pressure to return. And only about 4% of the C-suite executives who responded uh, felt that same level of pressure. Rebecca, was there, was there any regional uh, differences in your survey work? I would think that some markets that rely upon mass transit, like the metropolitan New York market, would the numbers would be even lower than maybe some parts of the country that haven't been hit that badly. Uh, yes, we, we concentrated less on metropolitan areas, but of those who indicated that they had concerns about mass transit, for example, that's exactly right. They were largely from metropolitan areas. Rebecca, what kind of industries are in here? Are they across industries? And, and what are demographics? Was there differences between, say, for example, you know, women and men or younger and older? Uh, yes, we didn't look at age. We did look at uh, gender differences. And um, I would say that across most of the metropolitan areas, there were not very many significant differences. Um, but 
between men and women, uh, the responses were somewhat different. And women were slightly more concerned about a few things. Um, women felt more pressure to return to the workplace. They were more concerned with uh, personally contracting uh, COVID-19 if they did return. And uh, women were less comfortable in trusting that their colleagues in the workplace would adhere to whatever the guidelines were, mask wearing or, uh, you know, distancing and that sort of thing. So uh, that, that was a, a difference between the ways in which men and women responded. So, Rebecca, when you're, when you're last with us, I was really surprised by your earlier survey work that showed that, you know, a lot of companies still hadn't articulated a plan for returning. Now that you've, you've, you've surveyed employees, are the employees saying they're getting decent messaging or they're, or they're getting some guidance or are they still a little bit in the dark? No, in fact, it was pretty consistent. So in the earlier survey, when we asked, um, you know, executives about their plans, 35% said they... They didn't know when they'd reopen the workplace. And so in this survey where we're asking employees as to what has been communicated to them, 37% said it was unknown to them what the plans were. And that's not, not that surprising when you think that only 28% uh, of the respondents expected to be back in the workplace, if indeed you know, there's some survey that never left, uh, but expect to be back in the workplace by year end. And there's another 38% who think it's going to be sometime in 2021 or beyond. But it's so uncertain and concrete plans haven't been communicated. And so that's very consistent in both surveys. Yeah, I feel like it's uh, really dependent on some kind of evidence that therapeutics works at the very least, if not an absolute vaccine for people to be really comfortable. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining. It's a great survey and... uh, You know, a great synopsis of it there. Rebecca Ray is the Executive Vice President for Human Capital at the Conference Board. She leads the U.S. Human Capital Center and all of the research related to that. And Paul, I just want to point out that the Bloomberg Consumer Comfort Index fell last week to 48. That was down from 49.3 a week earlier. But the Mm. message here is the direction. You know, we're already below 50, so already not confident whatsoever. Confidence is decreasing, but it's now decreasing even more. And perhaps that has something to do with it initial jobless claims and all of the other negative data as well. Yeah, I think the uh, the pandemic trend's not helping at all, and that's kind of driving what we're seeing across the board. Yeah, it's going to be the story for some time. It is time to bring in Sarah Ponzak now, cross-asset reporter for Bloomberg. And Sarah, you know, there's been so much stopping and starting in terms of will stimulus happen, won't stimulus happen, President Trump shutting it down, President Trump opening the door again. You would have thought that it would move the bond market a little bit. But ever since we got that one big move the other day, we haven't really seen much else. Why not? Right. We have seen yields kind of be stubborn after they did rise to the higher end of that range. So you look at the 10-year right now, trading around 77 basis points after reaching close to 80 basis points. At the same time, you look at the 30-year, and many investors are really looking at the 30-year because as you move out further on the yield curve, you don't see as much suppression due to the Fed's action. So many investors are watching that 30-year yield to take any hints, see what the market is pricing in in terms of inflation, growth, of course, of course, those are both derivatives of any extra fiscal stimulus. And that 30-year just continues to play around its 200-day moving average. So we haven't been able to punch through uh, quite forcefully, but still we do see bond yields trading at the higher end of their range. And why not? Well, yes, fiscal stimulus would be very much appreciated uh 
for the economy. It might usher in growth, might usher in inflation. But we still have to remember that the reason we need fiscal stimulus, the reason we are in these straits right now is because of COVID-19, is because of the trajectory of the virus. And there just remains to be this uncertainty. There continues to be this uncertainty surrounding the trajectory of the virus, especially as we head into the winter. What is that going to mean for businesses? So there's just this uncertainty still, and it's really difficult for bond yields to punch much higher when we have this huge cloud hanging over the economy. And despite that huge cloud, Sarah, we continue to see the stock market trade quite well, quite healthily, near all-time highs. And one of the drivers has been big technology, and one of the big tech stories is the cloud. And we saw that again today, IBM spinning off a business so they can presumably focus more on their cloud business. You wrote a great article for Bloomberg News talking about the cloud business, IPOs like Snowflake. How concerning should it be that some of these names that, you know, like Snowflake IPO'd at $120, it's now trading at $245. Is that speculative and is there risk there associated with that part of the market? So when you see these moves, you can automatically look at them and say, this seems extremely speculative. A lot of investors I've spoken to say this reminds them of the dot-com days. However, there's also almost an equal amount or a, a healthy number of investors in the space that say, look, there is reason for this. This is a different time in the 1990s. In the 90s, there was true speculation. People were making up metrics. There weren't many numbers that stood behind these companies that were IPOing and flying because they had .com in their name. Nowadays, you look at the likes of these cloud computing stocks, and yes, some may be new, some may be young. JFrog, for example, is another one IPO the same day as Snowflake and took off as a profitless company. However, at the same time, you look at the growth trajectory here, especially after the world that we've been living in the past couple of months, forcing people to work from home, forcing some children to do online schooling from home, and cloud services really enable these capabilities. So there are many investors that I spoke with for this story who said, yes, you look at the numbers, you look at the pops, it might be reminiscent of the 1990s. However, it's really nowhere near there, and we are just in a different time. In fact, um, Mandeep Singh, he's a senior technology analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, he made the point that Right now, cloud spending is only about 10% of overall IT spending for companies. So he says there's major room for these companies to expand into their valuations because there's a long runway for growth. We get earnings kicking off, and one of the groups that people will be interested to see will be banks, obviously. How does this new Morgan Stanley Eden Vance news change that dynamic? Well, it just shows the complications that the financial industry has been dealing with. We saw earlier in the year Morgan Stanley swoop up E-Trade. Now we have Morgan Stanley buying Eaton Vance. And it shows consolidation within the industry. And you have to imagine, especially with interest rates so low and likely to be so low for the future, many of these companies, when it comes to consumer banking and collecting that spread as it relates to net interest margins, that's really difficult. So you have to find different avenues to bring in revenue, to bring in profits. So So at least for Morgan Stanley, we see them going after that asset management business. And when you look at financials today, second best performing sector up 1.2%. When I checked just a few moments ago, every single member, there's 64 members of that index, every single one was in the green. So we have seen financials head higher uh, in recent 
days. I'm looking over the past five days, financials up more than 4%, one of the top performing sectors in the S&P 500, helped by increasing yields. But at the same time, I mean, a bond yield sub 80 isn't isn't going to help uh, these banks out too, too much. Sarah Ponzak, thank you so much for joining us. Sarah Ponzak is a cross-asset reporter uh, for Bloomberg News. And Vani, when I was kind of surprised when I saw that Morgan Stanley News, I think about the, <clears throat> I mean, the asset management business as being a very challenged business in terms of fees pressure. I'm just not sure why they would want to increase their investment there other than you know just that asset collection story. It's true. Well, David Havens at Imperial talks about $500 million absolutely guaranteed every year. And that part of this is going for the guaranteed, you know, non-volatile fee income as, as low per transaction as it may be, mm. rather than just be solely dependent on these volatile markets. Yeah, interesting. So, but, uh, you know, as Sarah was mentioning, uh, you know, James Gorman uh, of Morgan Stanley had been quite uh, active here, uh, which is really interesting given the, the environment we're in to see uh, a CEO uh, making you know, some pretty big bets here uh, in, the, in, the, in the marketplace that's dominated by the pandemic. Time now to look at the latest COVID-19 therapeutics and vaccines. And as President Trump calls therapeutics cures, let's bring in Sam Fazelli. He is Senior Pharmaceuticals Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, also Head of EMEA Research at Bloomberg Intelligence. So quite the brief. Sam, is the President being disingenuous calling therapeutics and those he's received, including the Regeneron antibodies, cures? Um, hi, Bonnie. So um, I, I don't think so. I mean, I mean, you know, politicians always use their uh, phrases very loosely. But I think in this case, for some patients, for some patients, it could indeed be a cure. Um, at the end of the day, m- many of the drugs that we've developed, including cancer drugs, cure some patients, but not all patients. And then the, uh, that's where, the, um, that's where the, uh, the, the difference is. We have to think about it a bit more broadly for that. We can't let people run away thinking that as soon as they have COVID, they can get treated with this and whatever their disease or state of disease or their own state of health, they'll be cured of it. Sam, what do we know about Regeneron? Uh, well, we know that they have, a, they have developed many antibodies before for other, for other diseases, successful ones. We know that they have developed a cocktail here, and they only ever went after a cocktail of two antibodies um, to treat uh, COVID and also potentially use it as a preventative. And we know that they did it for Ebola, and that reduced the mortality rate for Ebola quite significantly, too. So that's what we know, and we know a little bit of data from this one for COVID. It looks like it's working. We just need more and more data to understand how well and whom it's best for. And of course, the president also getting steroids like dexamethadone and more as well. Probably, you know, other therapeutics we don't know about either. We just got word that Moderna said it's not going to enforce its patents related to any vaccines during the pandemic in an effort to not deter other companies and researchers from making similar shots. Is this something we need to watch out for, Sam? Will there be any kind of problems here with patents or, or companies being particularly, you know, uh, covetous of other people's research? Um, well, well, yeah, I think that's a really nice gesture to make, but I think most it was assumed that most companies will act the same way. Um, uh, and that, that they won't be, you know, if, if, it, if, if, if it's possible that somebody is having a go at them for their patents, 
uh, or somebody else is saying that we've got patents that you infringe, I think this is a little bit of a uh, protective shout as well, or, or a sh- shot as well, in terms of uh, there are others who are saying that we have patents that you, you're in, you've intervened, so, uh, sorry, uh, you've, um, you, you've uh, infringed. So we have, to, uh, we have to watch out for that, but it's the right thing to do for all the companies. So, Sam, with Regeneron, President Trump is saying that he will make it free for all. How can he do that, or how will he do that? Have we seen any evidence of that kind of policy in the past? Um, n- n- no, not not in the not in the U.S. Well, actually, look, I don't know. I can't tell you that that's uh, never happened. Um, in most of the rest of the world, um, at least in in Europe, medicines are not that expensive, and and uh, folks don't have to put their hands in their pockets to pay for it. Um, vaccines are always relatively cheap, even. Relative to to high price drugs, so you know, one hundred twenty dollars, one hundred thirty dollars, ten dollars, twenty dollars. Those are the sorts of prices for vaccines. These therapeutic antibodies, one would assume for this type of application, would be like a thousand or two thousand dollars a shot. So you know, it's not. It's only two billion if you if you wanted to give a million people the therapy. So it's not like a big number compared to what they're signing off for uh, for all the um, uh, help they're giving companies, etc. And that would be assuming that the U.S. government would, would offer the company money for these shots. Sam, where are you in relation to your forecast now for when we'll actually have a widely available vaccine? Yeah, you know, I like playing with words there, Vonnie. Um, widely available. Mm. Uh, I, I think we have to be careful with that one. I, I think initially we're going to end up with enough doses to potentially uh, prevent uh, or, or to... to uh, what a cliffhanger, Sam! Go back for a sec. We ju- you just you, you clicked out for a second. We need to hear that bit. Oh no, no, sorry about that. So no, I, all I'm saying is that I think it's important to be careful with the wor- verbiage that we use here. Uh, broadly available. I don't expect any vaccine to be broadly available until well into 2021, possibly even 2022, in terms of everybody getting it. That's wow. a big, big or tall order. So, Sam, how, how will that actually happen? I mean, is this going to be a, a whole bunch of pharmaceutical companies coming together jointly producing and distributing? Uh, well, I, it, I think we're going to have to first wait to see which vaccine looks better than another one. So, mm-hmm. And we're going to get a whole bunch of data by the end of the year in Q1. We'll, we'll have quite a lot of knowledge in that time frame, at least in the, um, in the uh, early po- times of protection rather than long-term protection. So... Um, and they're all different. So I, th- I think what you'll end up with is that countries like UK and the US have done deals with just about everybody to try and get access to enough doses, waiting to see who's best. And that's why ending a trial early is a bad idea. Interesting. All right. Sam Fazelli, thanks again, as always. Sam Fazelli, senior pharmaceutical analyst, analyst to the stars, head of EMEA research for Bloomberg Intelligence. He wears a couple of hats uh, and he joins us from somewhere in France, uh, God only knows. Um, so anyway, we appreciate that. And interesting, Vani, the timetable is a late this year, early next year, uh, and then wide availability sometime uh, later in 2021, according to Mr. Fazelli. So we'll have to wait and see there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.